Hi and welcome to BroPod, where we talk to those at Defy Convention from the world of sports, media, finance, and politics. I am, as always, joined by my co-host, Kieran McKenna. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. We found out a new little spot for uh, for our yeah, podcast and our couch. Take this to the couch. Yeah, without it being a bit yeah, sus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're on a we're on a laid back vibe. How about yeah. that? Um, before we, uh, or actually, let's just present our guest. Yes. So our guest this week is is Michael Stewart. He's a Scottish former footballer. Um, he began his professional career at Manchester United. Left there at seventeen. Um, was there under great era of uh, Manchester United, some mm-hmm. might say. Yes. Um, so for the younger audience, the Manchester United used to win everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, he was there during an illustrious time for the club. Um, what's going on on the fringes? He's competing against some of the best midfielders in the world. Yes. It eventually took him to Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, and he played for Hearts. And he went to Hibs. And he went back to Hearts. Yes. Uh, two esteemed clubs in Scotland. And um, he also had spells in Nottingham Forest and Charlton. And he was also capped four times for Scotland. Yes. Um, but following retirement, he has worked as a pundit for BBC Scotland, BT Sport, and the Scottish Sun. And furthermore, he has started to forge a career into politics, participating in broadcasted political debates and sharing political commentary with his over 100,000 followers on Twitter. Um, I've come across him uh, mm-hmm. before, Kieran, but yeah. uh, you brought attention to... Um, more of his wider political engagement, which I mm-hmm. found very interesting. Upon yeah. further uh, research, what's uh, yeah? What's your what was your impression of him, so to speak, uh, leading up to this? He's always been very outspoken, whether that be when he's doing his football punditry. He always he's not afraid to take the controversial side when necessary, and that kind of translates into when he's doing his political commentary on Twitter, um, calling organisations out, calling leaders out, um, and it's always been very entertaining and, you know, very admirable in the way he operates on Twitter and in that space of, of politics, especially coming from football and trying to, you know, forge away in politics and, and, and create, you know, an identity for yourself there. And so... For someone like me, who mm-hmm. loves football, plays football, but also enjoys politics, it was just, it seemed like, you know, I don't want to say the perfect guest, but it was a very fitting guest, and a lot of good questions that just came natural, you know, very authentic questions, just out of a sheer curiosity of, you know, how he does stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, this uh, podcast or this episode is a, is a fitting platform for when we look back, where we officially launch your political uh, campaign, um, maybe you know ten years ahead yeah. of time, but we're still we're putting it in into yeah. the universe, laying the groundwork. Yeah, laying the absolute groundwork from the grassroots of pod, <laughs> the pod, podcast world. Um, but Michael was a uh, a great guest. He he. He gave us some great answers, and it was it's, we always appreciate when people set aside time to discuss yes. both football and the lessons uh, and the applications of said experience, mm-hmm. but also then that transition into a different career. So Absolutely. really appreciated Michael being on. Yeah. So um, stay tuned, and uh, and we will start our uh, our chat with Michael Stewart. 
we are delighted to have Michael Stewart on the show, if we can call it that. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us, Michael. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, guys. Yep, thanks for having me on. No, our pleasure. And yeah. um, Kieran, we are, you know, Michael, as we have uh, alluded to, is at the intersection of football, but also politics mm-hmm. and going yeah. in that area. And obviously now we're at a very important time yeah. and in the center of the political sphere uh-huh. as there is the cop 26 um have you what's your take on it? have you managed to involve yourself in it so far or even get into a, an event or a talk or anything of the of the sort um no to be honest not f- for any sort of uh it's not as if there's any disinterest here because I'm, I'm you know, I'm clearly interested in it, but um, I've I've not I've not been involved. I've not been in. I've not seen anything. I've, you know, um, I'm through in Edinburgh, not a million miles away uh, from Glasgow, but I've not been through and got involved in any of it. But um, obviously, it's a hugely important um, uh, gathering, uh, monumental. You know, there's at the end of the day, look, there's there's been numerous events like this over the years, obviously the last one in Paris where um, they start to flesh out um, protocols and and, uh, and treaties to try to move things forward. But I think that, I get the sense, I think you guys will as well, that um, there's a greater awareness, there's a heightened awareness amongst general public of the impending you know, need to get something done here. So fingers crossed, hopefully that can happen. And Scotland as a country can, you know, be a, a leading light in that because the, the the transition towards net zero in Scotland is is moving at a, a pretty good pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your overriding sense on it all? Are you pretty? Are you hopeful that you know we can the the world can kind of tackle the issue, or are you a little bit more cynical and pessimistic? Um, on topics like this, I'm. I'm you know, I'm always, I don't think I'm naively optimistic. I think I'm, you know, realistically optimistic. I like to try to see, you know, things positively in that sense. Um, that um, human beings are innovative, you know. Like, throughout the generations, there's always problems that get solved. And there's obviously a, there's a, a greater urgency in this. There's no doubt about it. But... You know, just things like creating a carbon market so that um, industry and uh, economies in general can come together to try to make it a profitable thing to get rid of and capture carbon. You know, that's that's what drives you know economies forward is making money. So yeah. it's about trying to find a way of making it profitable for businesses to do just that, rather than doing what we've done for you know centuries now which is burn fossil fuels and uh, and effectively fuck the planet so it's like how to um just shift the the mindset and look i'm not involved in it but there's a there's a whole load of greater superior you know thinking people at the forefront of industry that that's all they're doing is trying to figure that out so yeah i'm fairly positive um I was at an event on last week and I was talking to um, Gordon Dewar who runs Edinburgh Airport and I was just saying to Gordon about, um, you know, obviously aviation is just seen as like the, the bogeyman on on this. It's one of the biggest uh, problems and 
and he was just saying, like, look, the technology is, is not far away. Like, for example, like electric planes or um, he was saying, um, and I, I hope I'm not butchering his comments, I'm pretty sure it was along the lines of, there's a flight planned next year from Edinburgh to Inverness on an electric plane. So, that you know, that technology is there. He also said that, like, um, aviation fuel, like renewable fuel, so rather than just uh, a classic um, fossil fuel, um, is, is out there. But the problem is the cost. It's like three times the cost. So it, it's he was talking about the... It's about trying to bridge that gap between now and say 10, 15, 20 years time where that is the norm. It's about how to bridge that gap at the at the moment, which is is because of the urgency. But I'm optimistic to answer your question. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, but money money talks and people yeah. need incentives. I think uh I think we also have mm-hmm. lived a long enough life to understand uh, that a thing, pe- Yeah, the one thing the pandemic's even shown is that when you know the private sector is forced and nudged they can innovate so much quicker with the vaccine like happening in a year. So it's finding that balance to applying the right amount of yeah. pressure that they will, you know, because like you say, they're just going to kind of follow the money. And if you, if you give them a shot, we'll, you know, they, they tend to act pretty quickly. Yeah. Appeal, appealing to goodwill, I think is uh, yeah. perhaps a bit uh, romantic and naive, but we all get into the um, that um space in a short while but before we do that we want to obviously discuss a bit about your football career because um you've had a a very good career you've played at some very traditional clubs and you started your um professional career so to speak at at Manchester United signing professional contracts alongside John O'Shea, Wes Brown, Luke Chadwick and you spent the years of 17 like pretty formative years from 17 to 22 and obviously you went on loan I'm aware after that what are the pros and cons of growing up and becoming an adult in, in that sort of environment? Um, well, you're right. I mean, look, whenever you spend your formative years, there's pros and cons. Um, but looking back on you know my time at uh, United, uh, the pros vastly outnumber the, the cons. Um, the pros being that at that time, it was effectively the best club in the world. You know, in my view, surrounded by a lot of the best players in the world, um, the winning mentality—the reason that they were winners because they were good people fundamentally, which was led by the you know the, the manager who was you know, best manager potentially of all time. Um, so you're learning not just about football but about life as well from good people, um, and that that winning mentality, uh, the the hunger and the desire that those guys showed even when they've already done it. Um, so there's huge pros in that respect. You're learning the game of football, you know, on a purely football uh, level. You're learning the game from um, real, just real people as well that know not only are they being successful, but they know how, uh, you know, my United, you can't argue about being a successful team, but they were boring to watch or they were, you know, or they were grinding results out. They were a successful team playing football that everybody wanted to watch, everybody wanted to be involved in. So that still influences, you know, me massively, like, you know, today. Um, and 
I heard Ange Postacoglu coming up with something a few weeks ago, and I, uh, he's absolutely spot on when he was under a wee bit of pressure about um, getting results and the way he's trying to play football. And the questions were being framed almost as if you have to let go of that fantasy view of football to get some results. And he was like, look, playing good football and getting good results are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Those two things can coexist quite easily. So they're all the pros. The cons um, are that um, it's very difficult to, at that period of time as well, when it's one of the best clubs in the world, it's very difficult to get enough opportunity. The reason that Man United, uh, you know, I went there, because obviously I had an opportunity to go to most clubs down south, um, but the reason I chose Man United was because it, the, the, you know, the gaffer understood and implemented a clear strategy of you had to create space to give youngsters an opportunity, otherwise you hit a glass ceiling and then that, you know, talent is, it plateaus and it disappears. You never know what the player could become. Um, and you see, I see it all the time. That's why, you know, again, I'm a huge proponent of, um, it takes balls though from people, you know, leaders. And it takes vision, you know, to be able to do that. Um, and it takes people that have got broad enough shoulders to take a risk. But ultimately, the end result is, is far superior. Far too often, you see people in football that are just, like, they're clinging on to what they've got already. And okay, that might suffice for another year or two. But to get the longevity, you have to be able to continually, you know, allow youth that space to, to grow. Um, unfortunately for me, the problem was that it got to that stage where... Um, the, the mid, midfield in particular was the best in the world, but there was a juncture as well where, so when the manager was going to retire the first time around and Sven Joran Eriksson was muted to be taken over, um, he, really, I think you said earlier on there, Marcus, myself, John O'Shea, Wes Brown, Luke Chadwick, um, we all sign, signed like first team contracts around about the same, within about six to 10 months of each other um, and that was him building for you know the future when he was going to be leaving the problem was that that season that he was going to retire he signed uh, Juan Sebastian Veron and it was almost as a you know a, a bit of an X factor to try and unlock the Champions League because the final was in Hamden at the end of that season his hometown and that just limited my opportunities again at a year where it was important to, to get more game time I remember sitting on the bench the first game of that season um, and it was a Champions League qualifier against a Hungarian team uh, called Zalag Razek. Pretty sure it was. Probably butchered their name, but it was something like that. Um, and in Budapest. And sitting on the bench and Scolzi's on the bench as well. Nicky Buck was on the bench. And like, fuck me. You know, it's yeah. tough. It's tough. So that's the cons. The cons are that um, I'm saying cons in terms of big clubs, but funnily enough, at such a huge club like Man United, that was a con that wasn't, you know, as apparent as it would be other big clubs because of the manager. Because the manager, you know, was always aware of trying to create opportunities for the youth to to step in and grow. But you're, you're never going to you're never going to be able to take away from the fact that one of the cons are that you're trying to displace some players that are the best players in the world. 
right. which is cool. Yeah. And on that topic, then, because it's easily, I mean, all footballers, it's easy to be, you know, to be defined as a footballer. And the reality of and the life of a footballer is it, there's a lot of ups and downs. You know, I always like to say it's 95% bullshit and the 5% is what keeps you going. Uh, and that drug, whether it's winning, scoring, performing well, is just the ones who play can really understand it and it kind of negates um, the rest of the crap you have to go through. But on that topic, we do this podcast because we seek that stimulation, so to speak. Yeah. Um, while others, perhaps they need to have that obsession in order to thrive. How, if you compare your experiences, Manchester United versus other, or the progression of your career, how did you find that? Or how is your approach in finding that perfect balance in terms of, you know, defining yourself as the player and the person, Michael Stewart? Uh, that's a great question, Marcus, and it's probably better than I talk about it a lot, and I don't think I've ever been asked, you know, a question like that before. But it's striking down to, you know, who I am, because football, as you just said, like, you know, the majority of it is, is, is bullshit. There's a lot of arseholes involved in the game. Um, a lot of bad people because like a lot of industries when there's a lot of money involved it can bring out the you know the worst in people at Man United you're almost incubated though because it was such a good place so you're almost living in this dreamland but you're not aware of it as being a dreamland because you have no other experiences to reference it with that's your normal and when it got to the stage where I was in my mind you know going to Man United from even from when I was 12 year old, still at school, the whole progress was like on an upward trajectory. And then it starts to plateau slightly. And I always felt quite suffocated with football because being away from home, it was like everybody I knew was related to football in some way. It was either my teammates or it was like a landlady's family or, you know, or one of the lads, local lads, one of the, it was, it was someday you know, no matter what it was, it was related and without too many degrees of separation to football. And when everything's all right and you're on an upward trajectory, that's fine. But then when things are starting to like, you know, plateau a bit and, and I'm interested in other things as well, I just, you, I found it difficult to be able to um, escape. And, and this is not something that, you know, when you're like, in your early 20s, it's not something that you're able to articulate. It's not even something you're fully aware of. But it's like, a, you know, something inside you that you're aware of, but you don't really know what's going on. And that was what just basically pulled me back to, to going back home. I just wanted to go home. I don't know what. I, I always felt, even when I was down at United, that um, whenever I had like a few days off or whatever, I just wanted to go home. And, I mean, that's not unusual to people but at that stage when I knew that I was I was going to have to you know leave United now I could have gone to you know other clubs down south but I didn't I didn't even contemplate it. I just wanted to come home because I wanted to be able to play football for all the reasons that you know we all are fully aware of that it's a great occupation all the rubbish that comes with granted but it's a great job um, and you love doing it, but I needed to be able to just compartmentalise and go to work, play football, and then get away from it. Just meet my mates. Mm -hmm. 
go and uh, you know do other things away from football. And Edinburgh is such a great place because it's a cultural hotbed, you know. Um, and it's not like I'm I'm talking about like going in uh, into art galleries and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't to that extent. Although those things, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, alien to that. But at that age, it wasn't like I was needing you know things like that. I just needed to be able to even just go and sit at my folks' house and have a coffee or go you know see my mates and just sit around and talk and not have to talk about football. Be able to talk about other things. Um, so. I often say to people, for me coming home, it was probably the worst decision I could have made in a footballing context, but it was the best decision I ever made in, in terms of my life. You touched on it there, obviously, after you left Man United, went back to Edinburgh and played for Hibs and Hearts. And I'm wondering how the pressure of being at Man United and coming through and playing there compares to the pressure and experience of playing for Hibs and Hearts. And I think a lot of people looking from the outside might assume that after you've been at Man United, it's maybe easier to play for Hibs and Hearts, but we maybe know a little bit better that how big you know clubs and institutions they are and how important they are for the lives of people in Edinburgh. So I'm wondering how that kind of pressure and experience compared or differed. Um, that's another good question, Kieran. And like these things are all relative. So you know, at, at um, you know the early stage of career being at United. And you, you boys have probably experienced it as well. You know, you're you're not, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, you're veterans, but you're you're not young pups either. So you've you've been through that initial stage of like um, innocence of youth, and you're just playing football, and you're like, this is great and brilliant. And then you've had a few peaks and troughs, and and then you're like, right, okay, you figure your way out of how you deal with it. So you know, at United, as I said before, everything's on an upward trajectory. It's just like what's not to like this is the best thing in the world then you know you hit a few stumbling blocks you, know, you just you don't know how you're doing you just get on with it and then you start enjoying football again um and relative to being you know hearts and hips i didn't you know i'm not one to like you know pressure in terms of playing football i don't really you know i never really felt any real external pressure. That didn't really ever bother me. The biggest thing for me and was one of my biggest strengths, but it was also one of my biggest weaknesses was the internal pressure I put on myself. You know, the standards that I uh, felt I should be uh, reaching and things that I should be doing. Um, so not to be dismissive of, um, I was fully aware, of course I was, because you know, I've, I've grown up in Edinburgh, all my family and friends are heart supporters. And, you know, I know what it's all about, but it wasn't like I allowed that to impact me or affect me. It was more about me putting demands on myself. Um, and the, I mean, the, you know, to touch on like crossing over to go and play for like Hibs, the, one, it was a similar sort of feeling that, you know, I'd only been back home for like a year and the football had been brutal. But being at home, like I said before, was like the best thing I could have hoped for. And I wasn't ready just to, to leave. You know, I felt like I needed to get my roots in again somewhere. And my roots were here. I had, you know, I had a house here um, that I'd bought when I'd been down south. I felt, you know, grounded. You need to feel that at times. So I wasn't ready to leave. And Tony Mowbray was the manager at Hibs. 
who had known me from when he was down south at Ipswich and obviously I'd been down south as well. And he just wanted to talk to me. And, you know, I, you're a bit sceptical at first and think, I can't do that. And then I just thought, do you know what? Uh, they play great football. I just want to go and speak to a football guy now and talk about, like, football on a level that, you know, I actually can relate to. And I went to speak to him and uh, Mark Venus um, at... Uh, where Vino was staying in, in Edinburgh I just came away for it just thinking oh, I like those guys like they're talking my language and you know it's not easy of course but I was at that stage where I, geographically I didn't want to leave I still wanted to play football and I just met like guys that I was like I want to play for them you know and obviously Hibs had a very very good team at that time so yes there was a bit of uncomfort uh, and a bit of discomfort, sorry. But then going in first couple of days, you're like, good guys, good manager, good coach. I'm in Edinburgh, and you, you forget about it. And you enjoy, not not only you forget, but you enjoy it, you embrace it. You know. Um, so that was that was you know the reason that I, that I, I, I stepped over and, and played. And then in reverse, it was all it was a very similar sort of thing in regards to. Um, Obviously, things had gone a bit sour at Hibs uh, after Mogg had left. Uh, John Collins had come in, and initially it was fine, and then it turned sour. Um, but again, I was at a stage where I was happy. I didn't want to leave. There'd been there'd been chat. There was a few sort of um, potential things that were in the offing. Um, there was a possibility uh, that Celtic might have been, but it was like they were having to wait to potentially move some players on. And then this opportunity came back up to go uh, to go back to Hearts. And at that point, when that happened, I thought to myself, I've got unfinished business there. You know, and Hearts was my club. And I felt like I wanted to go back to just right a few wrongs. And again, I was I was happy where I was geographically. Understandable. I uh I think Edinburgh, I love Edinburgh. And it's yeah. to, to, to Kieran's well, disdain as a as a Glasgow boy, he, he doesn't <laughs> like that I prefer Edinburgh or Glasgow. I can understand that it's a much better set if no, I, I, I really like Glasgow, don't yeah, get me wrong, yeah, but yeah. I like Edinburgh better. Yeah. So no, no offense. <laughs> but <laughs> on um, I've yeah. I've grown, you know, I've grown to really like Glasgow as well. Yeah. You know, there's, there's parts of the city that are great fun, you know, really yeah. nice, nice bits as well. Um but you know, like I'm an Edinburgh boy, I'm biased, and you know, like for raising a young family now as well, it's such an easy city to to get around, and there is so much um, in the city. Like I said earlier on, it's like a cultural hotpot. Yeah, know? exactly. And two, as you say, traditional clubs, great stadiums, great following. Um, on that topic, though, in terms of you know finding that um, finding become the footballer side, but also then off the field. Um, you know, obviously now engaged within uh, the political space. And first question, I guess, is where did that interest start? Hey, a good question. I think I didn't grow up in a political household at all. It wasn't, you know, something that was spoken about or discussed or no, there was nothing really. Um, it was football. That was it. Um, there was there was no headspace to really think about anything else. And sometimes I do think, you know, what a simpler time that was. And ignorance is bliss to a certain extent. You know, I, I do, you know, there's 
frustration builds from learning about things and understanding things and becoming a bit cynical about things as well. And I often say that to my wife. I'm just like, you know, I need to just, I'm switching off for this because it's just, it's actually, the, the, the person I am as well, I get engaged in something too much that it becomes, you know, self-defeating because it, it actually eats away at, you know, at me. Um, but anyway, look, to get back to your point, where, where did it come from? I think it came from just the fact that moving away from home at 16 years old, you have a different perspective of, of home, of Scotland, because I'm not there. And, you know, I was surrounded by, like, you know, my peers at the time, boys that are from all over, like, you know, Ireland, Wales, England, some other guys from Scotland, boys for the continent as well, boys for, like, Scandinavia. And I just was, I was always, I mean, I was always, I think, interested in like Scottish history and things like that as well. So, and I've got a thirst for knowledge and learning and understanding things, but in my time and, and on my terms and just reading about things and always asking why. So surrounded by these peers and I'm just like, all right, Bojan's for Sweden or, there's a Mads for Denmark or, you know, Shazy for Ireland. How, how, you know, why are those places, like, govern themselves? Why are they countries, like, normal? Like, why is Scotland the way it is? And just the more I read and understood about it, it was just like, well, there is no reason why it is. It goes back to, like, we're talking about before, about the training of the week. You know, you train on Monday, Tuesday, you're off on a Wednesday and you're trained Thursday, Friday. Why? Well, just because you do. Right, but scientists and data show you that it's actually beneficial to do it this way. No, no, we just do it this way. You know, it doesn't make fucking sense. So, like, learning more about these things, it's just that it was a thirst for knowledge. And then looking at the historical con context to understand, you know, why Scotland is in the position that it is now. So I, I totally understand why we're here. But I just don't think it's the, you know, it's the right, you know, me personally. I don't think we will ever be able to maximise our potential if we continue to do things the way that we do it just now. Because ultimately, you know, in the simplest terms, if you see Scotland as a country, then a country has a government which is representative of the people, which then puts policies in place which the people vote for. And in Scotland, we have... A government in Scotland, which is elected for by the people. But then we have a UK government, which is implementing policies which are completely the opposite of what is happening here. And that has a huge, not just material effect, but it's a psychological effect, I feel. And far too often this downbeat and downtrodden, oh, well... No, that's just, that's it. And I just think that that's, you know, a bad space to be in. Um, and in, you know, 50 years time, 100 years time or whatever, nobody, I appreciate the economics of it are hugely important, but nobody can tell you 100% what is going to happen, regardless of, you know, in Norway, look, the bet, you know, the, probably one of the best governed nations in terms of <clears throat> your wealth fund that's over a, a trillion, I think it's $1.5 trillion now, right? But 
still, they wouldn't can he turn around and tell you definitively what's going to happen in 10 years' time. Nobody can. And unless you're able to take control of your own destiny and control the policies that are implemented now that will affect that in 10 years' time, then you've got even less opportunity to be able to affect the future. And that's what happens here in Scotland. But Scots instinctively will still look to Hollywood to fix the ills of the country because that's what any normal people would do. But the problem in Scotland is that many of those ills are not able to be solved at Holyrood. And it's that, you know, psychological and, you know, physical problem that, of course, you know, for, I want independence for Scotland, but I'm not, I'm not. I'm not talking about pulling up the drawbridge and saying we want nothing to do with you know the rest of the UK because we're in such close proximity. That's where things that are worked in unison with each other make perfect sense. But you can only work in unison with others if you have the ability to turn around on occasions and say, "No, we're not doing this." And within the UK, we have no ability to be able to do that. None, zero. We have given up one hundred percent sovereignty. And we are gifted things back. So if we don't want to do something on occasions, tough. That's not that's not working in cooperation. That's being told. And only if we're independent are we then able to work in cooperation with each other. And there are many issues that we will work in cooperation and, and uh, together because it makes perfect sense to do it. But I've. I've Going off on a bit of a rant. No, I, I, I was inspired by a speech. Now I'm not even Scottish. Michael, you're uh, you're preaching to the choir here, and I'm sure Marcus uh, loved the, the shout out to Norway. He's always. That's be refreshing for you yeah. to hear that from someone else. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> um, but back on to the kind of football and politics. I'm wondering if have you found that there's an advantage? What is the biggest advantage football has given you when engaging in politics? Because I think a lot of people underestimate the values and the lessons and even the skills that you can gain from, from playing football in a professional environment? Um, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, again, it goes back to the, the you know, your formative years. And I was very fortunate that formative years were spent around a lot of good people. So, you know, forgetting about just football as an industry as a whole, specifically where I spent my formative years were, were fortunate. Um, good people and, and look, the other thing is I'm extremely fortunate that I feel like I've you know I've, I've had a good family around me as well who um, always kept me grounded um, and just instilled some good principles in terms of you know right and wrong you know basics um, and I've always been you know like somebody that, that opinionated and if I if I feel like strongly enough about something, then I'll talk about it. So the advantages of football has been that it's given me a, a profile and a platform to be able to, you know, to talk about certain things because um, there's a lot of people that, and understandably so though, that have a profile or, um, or are known that don't want to talk about things because they don't want to upset people. Um, and I'm not trying to upset people, you know, with, when I voice an opinion, I'm just, I'm, I'm passionate about certain things. And I, I like to think that if I can try to articulate the reasons why I think something, 
then we can disagree on a point, but hopefully can actually see where somebody's coming from. Um, so the benefits of football have been specifically being very fortunate to have grown up at a, a good place, a good club, given me a platform to, you know, be able to then, and a profile to be able to uh, talk about things and, and some people to be able to, you know, hear that. And specifically on the game as a whole, you learn to deal with, you know, the peaks and troughs. And that's pretty much resembling of, of life because nothing's just like smooth. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of bumps in the road. So I think, you know, drawing on those experiences of playing the game um, and just learning to deal with, it never, I mean, look, it, it, it doesn't, just going to say it doesn't get any easier. It does get easier because you learn how to deal with things a bit better. You get experience of like, look, I've seen this before. It's a pain in the ass. It's not easy, but look, ride it out. It'll be, it'll be fine. You know, and the more you have them, the more you're able to sort of just not get too down or not get too high, and just sort of modulate your your feelings a bit better. This podcast is, as always, sponsored by Pimp Society. Think of it this way, they're basically a tattoo artist, but for clothes, shoes, and accessories, they offer a unique customization design to any clothing, uh, whether it be handbags, jeans, uh, slippers, what have you. So check them out on Instagram at Pimp Society, Facebook at Pimp Society, or check out their website where you can make your orders at pimpsociety.no. Now, back to our chat with Michael Stewart. I've always believed that there there are contrasting views when it comes to footballers who have an opinion or an interest outside of football. And there's the kind of old school, you know, stick to football. You don't know what you're talking about. And then maybe the more modern opinion, like footballers actually have a lot to offer in society. And, you know, they have unique perspectives. And I imagine you've maybe experienced both sides when you're trying to engage in politics, whether that be from, I don't know, the media or politicians themselves or just people in general, but how have you found the reaction from that, from the political space when you're trying to get involved and, and engage in it? Um, to be fair, I think I've been very fortunate. It's been positive. Um, one, because perhaps, you know, the, the, the platform that you know, I've had, but two, I would like to think hopefully because some of the things that I've said have made sense, you know, that it comes across that like, it's not somebody that's just talking mince. They have got a, a bit of an understanding about what's going on. And, you know, to go back to the point you're talking about, Kieran, about um, stick to what you know and things like that, you hear it all the time. Look, it doesn't matter what industry it is. And it's not to say that experience in industry doesn't matter because it 100% does. But that doesn't mean that, you know, people exclusively to one industry can only talk about that or they only understand that because there's so many skill sets that are transferable across so many different industries because we're all humans at the end of the day. A lot of it is, you know, behaviour patterns and things like that, that if you can relate it from one industry to another, that, that doesn't mean you can't then talk about that other industry because it's the human interaction that plays a big part of it. And I hear... And football is one of the worst for it, by the way, where, you know, somebody will talk about football or whatever, and, you know, inside the game, you get, you know, characters that are 
bristling at the fact that somebody outside the game could dare to talk about it. It's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know about you guys, but I certainly have. I've got mates that have never played the game at a high level. I respect their opinion more than some folk that I've played you know, football with at a high level. Because I see some guys that have played the game and they talk about it and I think to myself, you've not a f- clue. not a clue. Yeah. And then mates are talking about the game and you're on, aye, absolutely, you're on point, totally. So not to say that the experience of playing the game or managing the game at the top level doesn't count. It absolutely does count. But that doesn't mean that like everybody that's done that knows what they're talking about. No, it's the content to me, the most important thing is what you're saying, not who you are. And that's the same in politics, in my view. It's not to say that the experience in politics or business or whatever doesn't count. It absolutely does. But it doesn't mean that everything that every person that's been involved in that counts 100%. Because there's a lot of them that talk mince. Mm. And there's others who haven't been involved that I listen to and I go, they're absolutely on. They're spot on. It's funny because I think you, I think, I think in, within a football environment too, you can say a lot about footballers as well, but I think that um, f- that bullshit filter is pretty good amongst footballers. If they see a fraud or if they see someone talking like shite, yeah. they'll, they'll identify it immediately. And I think, you know, I think even I'll have discussion with players on team because honestly, my background, Kieran's background is a bit different from the other some of the other players I play with. And I think sometimes they tend to underestimate some of the the value that football brings in terms of some of the life lessons in terms of you know uh, you know change changing room dyna- yeah. the, the dynamics like of the a, emotional intelligence yeah the emotional yeah. intelligence and how you apply that and i think you tend to underestimate that and i think for yourself then in terms of if you step on some toes or saying your opinion i think that has it has a, a liberating effect on a lot of people too because if there's one thing about politics and i know you have ambitions of going in there as well it's there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit as well and being able to translate those qualities i think i think it needs that mm-hmm. and like you say because you haven't been in it doesn't mean doesn't mean you can't have an opinion i agree i that argument for me is doesn't make sense no it doesn't and like the one thing that i would say is that you know the the more uh, and this isn't just a political thing this is a, a societal thing that um i think over the last few years has started to formulate in my head as well is that not to be too critical of politicians because the more I see and the more I understand about this is that you have to, you know, when you negotiate and you're talking with the other side, and I'm guilty of this, and I'm, you know, constantly I'm going to learn about this, is that because I'm coming from a position of strong opinion, strong beliefs, you know, vocal and, and, and instinctively aggressive with it is that you have to be a hell of a lot more conciliatory. You've got to be, you know, more, um, a bit more candid at times. If you are wanting to not just, because it's all well and good winning the argument, right? Or winning the debate. But does that fundamentally change anything? It doesn't because all you're going to do is put the other side's back up and if their back is up, they're less likely to come around to your way of thinking. And in politics, you have to get them around to your way of thinking. So, like, it's all well and good. I'm in an ivory tower here. I can pontificate and articulate and, you know, and, and make points. And 
you know, a lot of people can say, oh, that's right, on point. But the other side are just getting entrenched and going, he talks, I don't like him. And And I get that, like, and it's that fine balance between feeling like you're not <clears throat> losing the principles of the, the point you're trying to put across and you don't want to give the other side that you feel a wrong, like a get out or whatever, but you have to try to find that sort of middle ground somewhere. Uh, and I'm still, you know, I've got a big, one of the big problems at the moment for me, you know, in a football context is, you know, the, the, the real pushback that I get from Rangers and Rangers supporters and there's many different dynamics that, and I suppose one of the big things I've got to admit, and this is exactly on point what I'm talking about, is that um, pushing too hard just creates a resistance. Yeah. And and I, how best to, to deal with that? I don't know. I don't have all the answers to it. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that anything that I've said or done that I feel is wrong because I don't, I feel like, you know, strongly and passionate about it. But um, perhaps there's just, there's a, there's a different tactic to it. Um, but as I said, look, Christ, we're always learning. One more question on the politics front, Michael. Like, yeah. How has it been for you trying to figure out your role and what you can offer in it all? Because obviously, like you said, you've got experts in football, experts in politics, and there'll be a lot of people in politics who've got a lot of experience and time in re- representing a constituency and, and driving policy. But obviously you believe you have something to offer. I'm wondering how it's been trying to find how you can leverage your knowledge. And if there's set, even, I know that you stopped playing in 2011 and this is sort of maybe a transitional period for you. And if there's certain things that you've done to kind of legitimise, you know, yourself in politics so that, you know, you can, you can get that credibility. Right. Some really, honestly, some really good questions, guys. And like, without trying to be sort of too flippant or dismissive of it all, like, I've never really overly thought anything that I've done. You know, it's just quite instinctive. And I'm still, you know, now, I don't think, and this is, you know, it's, it's a strength and a weakness. It's a strength and I'd like to think that it comes across as um, honest and, um, you know, natural. But then you do have to have a bit more of a strategic plan to be able to, you know, really have the, an impact the way that you would want. But in terms of, you know, how do I see, you know, my position or what I can do, I've not really thought about it a great deal. I think I've I've been fortunate in that doing a lot of you know work in the media it gives you a platform and a profile that people see and then there's lots of things that you know spurn off of that people contact you and being in Edinburgh you're close to um, you know, the centres of politics business and things like that so I I know a lot of people in that sphere that I spend time just talking to and and, and dealing with not in anything specific just. I'm in that space. So it's, I've never, I'm even at this point still, I don't know is my honest answer as to how to, um, you know, use that to leverage anything. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't overly think about it. There's occasions, no doubt that like, you know, I'm 40 year old now and 
there are moments when, you know, I've got three young kids and I've been doing media stuff for almost a decade now. And you think to yourself, how long do you do that? You know, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to do something else? What sort of legacy do you want? You know, but it's not like something that really occupies my head or my mind to a great extent. But I do, you know, from time to time think about it, but briefly. And I don't, I don't know. I've not, I've not formulated any clear idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I think half the half the battle is just being um, bold and having conviction. And I was, you were on debate night a few weeks ago. Yeah. And I think that just came, like, you had that in abundance. You were just, you know, you were questioning the, the Tory MP at the time, I forget his name, but you're just saying, you know, why? And, you know, that curious and kind of, um, you know, seeking the answers and also just saying, nah, like, you're wrong there. And it's just, like, half the battle is just being being bold and having that belief, so to speak. Aye, well, it was Oliver Mundell. So David Mundell's son, um, the former Secretary of State, for Scotland, his son Oliver's a, he's an MSP at the moment, and um, you know, I, I mean, look, I, was, I mean, Oliver, you know, talking to him, it's the first time I'd met him before, and afterwards he was pleasant enough, you know, he was a nice enough guy, but um, just the and James Withers, who was James's the head of Scottish Food and Drink, and James on the show that night, you know, just made a very good point in regards to there is a there's a complete um, ignorance and uh, inability from UK government and ministers to accept or even acknowledge what is happening with Brexit. And if you're unable to accept or acknowledge or be aware of the problem, then it's very difficult to find a solution. And it's this burying the head in the sand. And the whole time in Scotland, this utterly like gut-wrenching response of well Scotland didn't vote it was a UK vote mm-hmm. this inability to actually see that that's the problem what you're actually saying there is that Scottish democracy ceases to exist within the UK because if you what how do you define anything in regards to as a you know as, as a collective whether it's Clark Manninshire or Aberdeenshire or whatever. There are boundaries, which that's Aberdeenshire, that's Clark Manninshire. Scotland is an internationally recognised country. And when you talk about Scotland didn't vote for this and people say, well, right, there was a million people voting for Brexit, you're going, yeah, but there was 62% that voted to remain. So the collective, the majority that voted, voted to remain. And the argument that, oh, it was a UK-wide vote only goes to heighten and highlight the fact that Scottish democracy is ignored on such a fundamental and huge issue. And that's where, you know, talking to like Oliver Mundell, and I think Oliver made that point last night, that nobody talks for the million people that voted for Brexit. And you're like, oh, my God, Oliver, I'm sorry. Brexit has happened. It's happened. It's been imposed on Scotland. What about the 62% of people that voted against it in Scotland? The majority who have had a policy so fundamentally huge imposed on it. And you're talking about who's talking for the the minority who have got what they voted for. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's mental for me. It's bizarre. And in Scotland, we are, 
we allow this to happen. We, we allow this to happen now. And look, we could talk all day about, you know, how do we progress forward to IndyRef2 and all that sort of stuff. Whether you're for or against IndyRef2, for me, there is a fundamental issue on not accepting the will of the people. Scotland continually votes for a government whose policy is to have an, an independence referendum. What does it say if we are willing to just ignore that continually? And don't talk to me and don't tell me that we voted on it in 2014. Yes, we did. And we didn't get independence. That vote was respected. Democracy is not a single event. It doesn't just happen and then nothing happens again. That is something that continually moves and changes and shifts. And if you can't understand and recognise that Brexit is one almighty game changer, then you're either burying your head in the sand, you're being willfully ignorant, or lost hope. Mm. And I'm hopefully, I don't think that Scotland's a lost hope. I think, I think there is, you know, to finish on this point, I, I firmly believe that in Scotland, there's probably about seventy to seventy-five percent of the nation that would vote for independence. There's 20, 25, 30 maximum percent. It doesn't matter what happens, they would never vote for independence. But the, the huge majority want to vote for it. Now, you've already got, say, circa 50%. So there's another 20, 25% that are just, you know, something that's holding them back. And we all know them. We all know them. I've got mates that voted against independence, wanted independence, but voted against it. Fear. And I think that's a really bad place to, to, to build from. And that is one of the only things that's holding the union together. It's one of the biggest things is fear. I mean, I've been banging on about all, everything you're talking about to Marcus, but I don't know if I've done it as passionately as that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, I appreciate it. It's, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's a part of, it's a country I live in. So I know I appreciate that. With those toppings in mind then, um, where where do you hope to see yourself your goals in terms of the years ahead within uh, within within politics? Eh? I think I you know I touched on it just before. I, I don't know, or as my honest, I don't know. Where do I hope again? I don't you know I'm I'm a conflicted character at times. I'm interested in different things. Are we all? And yeah, and sometimes uh you know I think like yeah I need to do a bit more here and then life just takes over and all of a sudden and this is where lacking perhaps that little bit and enough focus or determination or drive to, to see it through um, is what leaves me in that meandering role as I am at the moment wrong with that so where do I, where do I hope I don't know because then I think to myself do I really want to put my family through that sort of stuff and do I want to get involved or do I continue to uh, be a protagonist from the, the do other things um, these are all conflicting things that go through hey, hey. we're all complicated <laughs> I get that we have that's part of our, our recurring segment we always yeah. we always end with three and it's one of them is where do you see yourself in five years and we have two more um, do you want to just yeah, the second one? one. What would the what would what advice would you give your your twenty year old self, just kind of hitting adulthood and growing up? 
looking back. Um, so for me, 20-year-old at that point, things were all good. You know, I probably just signed a first-team contract at Man United. Um, so my advice at that point would have been, um, you know, I spoke before about, you know, things that were perhaps a little bit unfortunate. But the other big problem was that, you know, me, myself, far too hard on myself, mm. thinking about things too much. And, you know, that ignorance is bliss is certainly true at times. If you don't understand a topic, then you're ignorant to it, so you don't worry about it. And I just probably worried too much about, at that point at United, um, a real sort of single uh, mindset and really driven about, like, you know, who's the next guy in front of me? I'm catching, I'm getting ahead of him. And then just, like, starting to think about, oh, fuck, what's the manager thinking on? Not, you know, and doubt creeping into my mind which inevitably plays a huge part in um, not being able to spend the rest of my career there. Because mm. I, I feel like, I, you know, had things been a lot, I could have. So my advice to a 20-year-old would be, look, keep that single-mindedness, keep that drivenness. Don't be distracted and don't worry about what the manager or what others, just keep doing what you're doing because that will serve you, it'll serve you well. Yeah. But then the caveat to that is that had I spent all my career down there, I wouldn't be where I am now. So I don't regret anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know whether I, I would have wanted to do that. I'm happier where I am. Well, I, I don't know. I can't say it definitively because I don't know. I don't know where I would have been, and I don't know how I would feel. But I, I, I wouldn't change anything. You know what I mean? Right. Because of where I am now, yeah. I would have loved to have stayed and had a whole career down at Man United. Of course, I would. But I don't look back and go like, fuck. Yeah. No, I think that was a perfect ending to it because it was a a great, from where we started, uh, perfect uh, reflection on that. Michael was, um, yeah, it was great. It was a great pleasure to have you on. I think that was a, was yeah, perfect. We're able to, you're able to inspire Kieran here. So in in a few years (laughs) time when he's representing, starting to represent Uddingston and then South Lanarkshire, and then it goes up bigger and bigger and bigger. So that was perfect in that sense. Um, but again, thank you, Michael. All right. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to our episode with Michael Stewart. Uh, we both highly enjoyed it, I'd say, Kieran. And Absolutely. For me, I think uh, when I reflect, it's obviously great for when we were discussing with Michael in terms of the wider applications of having a football career yeah. and how you can bring that into a, a different uh, industry, so to speak, and different space. And um, you know, there is that popular, popular, I don't know, take in the sense that if you're not in that, involved in that industry, whatnot, then you don't really have a say. Especially in football, it's highly yes, prevalent. Yes. Um, but there's that point to be made. But also, from a football perspective, and I think people from the outside who aren't involved in a professional environment and and all that, and even those on the inside, tend to maybe underestimate. Or not reflect on on football's wider applications because in some ways, some ways, especially in our case, we're not millionaires off it. Yeah. It's often like a it's a, some of a some bit of a microcosm yeah. into wider society. I think you know yeah. you have a lot of a lot of people from different countries, different cultures. There are different power dynamics. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a there's a set hierarchy. Um, you know, you have a boss to deal with. There's there's a lot of life lessons to be taught and i've always yes. been convinced that that would bode me well 
for the, for the future. And I think it's important for, you know, when I have conversations with people in the team and stuff like that, to un- for them to understand it too, because yeah. it definitely is a, uh, it is a, it is a great teacher in, yes. in, in many respects. And I don't yeah. say that just to big up our own experience, yeah. but I think it, you, if you reflect upon it, um, there's a lot of shit you have to deal with. Yes. And there is some good, but as I mentioned the, in the podcast's uh, episode, I said there's 95% shit yes. or bull- bullshit and 5% that keeps you going. But that 5% is real fucking good. Yes. Um, and so it's interesting to talk to discuss that with, with Michael. I don't know mm-hmm. what kind of thoughts you have on that. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, you said there how people maybe outside of football aren't quite familiar with the, the skills and the values that being a professional athlete in a football environment can kind of, one can gain from that. But you also mentioned, I think football players also undersell themselves mm-hmm. and they don't acknowledge or maybe it, it takes them until they're outside of football and going into other careers, just how how well kind of rounded individuals they are and all of the different skills. And, you know, that can range from emotional intelligence I mean we've interviewed people on this podcast before and I think it was Matt Rosetta the last one and he said the biggest thing is emotion like EQ they say they call it mm-hmm. EQ over IQ you know emotional intelligence these days is uh, far more valuable than you know IQ than just kind of your typical intelligence and I think footballers like you say the environments they're in you know, you're a 17-year-old and you're in change rooms with 35-year-olds and you're a 35-year-old in change rooms with 17-year-olds and you go through all of that and, you know, you're meeting people from all different cultures or different range of conversations and just how that can mould you. But then I think even the discipline of, you know, there's very rarely instant reward in football <laughs> and every any sort of kind of high in football you get has been preceded with months weeks you know years mm-hmm. of a discipline of you know doing the right thing and whether that's you know in training or in the gym or just completely outside of the, f- the football environment when it's at home and how you eat how you sleep you know your social life everything it, that you're ch- it's chipped away at and that then brings upon you a mindset that not a lot like a lot of people like it's very hard to develop naturally or I, I, you, you need to get put in certain experiences for that and I think a lot of, you know, maybe people in industries, it's not the same discipline as, you know, football, the, the rigidity of it. Um, and I think that can, you know, I, I don't know, it, de- it develops a certain mindset, um, which is unique. Yeah, and, and I, you know, for all footballers, unless you're messy or whatnot, we've all experienced mm-hmm. being on the bench mm-hmm. or being out of favour and yeah. whatnot. And in terms of that instant gratification and whatnot, the self control mm-hmm. and the ability to compartmentalize yeah. certain frustrations yeah. is is it's a pretty uh, it's it's a it's a frustrating and challenging task but one that mm-hmm. needs to be done you know if you have a if you mm-hmm. f- feel like you have a valid claim to play and whatnot yeah. and whether you find out on match day or before and being able to suppress it almost yeah. or or channel it channel it in a yeah. different way because you know that ultimately if you let it get the better of you ultimately you're just you're just fucking over yourself yeah and we we, we discuss that yeah a lot because it is yeah. oh, it's frustrating yeah and then you're almost like i'm done i'm fed yeah. up and then you have those little moments yeah. as well and it can change so quickly so you need to 
that you said kind of compartmentalise the frustrations because an hour later or 30 minutes later or a day later you could yeah. you know be called upon and you need to be in you know be ready for that and we've we've had direct yeah, cases of that exactly. on both sides yeah. where we've said to each other okay but be ready now and then yeah, yeah. what happens you are ready and then you are and then you are actually prepared for it yeah so um just a little pondering a little mm-hmm. re- reflection uh, mm-hmm. upon that but again um we all enjoyed our, our chat with, with with michael and um yeah please if you if you if you like it then uh subscribe share whatnot we always appre- appreciate that like a comment a flaring comment Hype is up. <laughs> um but yeah thanks for listening if you've stayed with us this whole time and uh yeah. and we'll see you very very soon